This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. Then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on wash and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Great to have you on the show where your rabbi, that would be me, reveals how the world really works. That's right. Because when you know how the world really works, why, you too can be a prophet. That's right. Think about a child. Think about a child who uh, comes and, uh, and tells you what he's going to be doing, or she, and you say, you're going to hurt yourself. You know, I don't think you should do that. And the child smiles back at you defiantly and proceeds to do it. And you say, well, you're going to come crying to me. Well, sure enough, five minutes' time, something goes wrong, and... Indeed, the child comes crying. Now, uh, to an unsophisticated observer, you were a prophet. How did you know? It was remarkable. You called an event a full five minutes before it actually transpired. The only possible explanation is that you're a prophet. Well, not exactly. Actually, there's something else going on, and that is that in that particular area of uh, your child's behavior and, uh, and uh, perilous conduct, you know how the world really works. That's all it is. Um, I once, a uh, number of years ago, I, uh, I was engaged in, in a business enterprise, and I went to seek the uh, counsel of somebody whom I considered to be a very, very wise business professional. And um, he, we went through everything. He, he looked at the material. He asked me some questions. And then he said, look, um, it's really, it would be a waste of time and energy for us to do what you propose and for me to, to do what you propose. Um, I think you're going to be out of business within a year. And I'll tell you what, when that happens, I'll certainly help you tidy up and clean up. But uh, I don't think it's viable. I don't think it's going to last for that much longer. Well, I left filled with even greater determination. I was going to show him. 
But it wasn't that he thought that I was inadequate. It wasn't a personal thing. It might have been the, uh, the, the business plan. It might have been the capitalization. It, it could have been a variety of things. But he said it wasn't going to work well. He looked like a prophet because six months later, the business was over. It was gone. It was distressing. And uh, I learned a lot. It was very painful. But it did show me what prophecy is. Once again, anybody else watching the interaction and, uh, and conducting surveillance on me would have seen that, sure enough, the man was a prophet. Exactly what he described is what came to pass three or four months later. Exactly. How did he know? Well, because if you understand how the world works, even if you don't understand how the world works in every area, but you understand how it works in a specific area, you can be a prophet in that area. And if, on the other hand, you're engaged in a particular zone in which uh, you simply have no understanding of how the world really works, you're not going to be very good at what you do because foresight is an almost indispensable adjunct to business success. That's why one of the chapters of my book, Thou Shall Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money, is devoted entirely to enhancing your ability to seeing ahead. Now, some might roll their eyes and, oh, prophecy, prophecy, oh, how exciting. No, it's uh, prophecy is a fancy word for something that is very straightforward and very basic. I'm not talking about Old Testament prophets uh, to whom God spoke and, uh, and vouchsafed certain information, but I'm speaking about the ability that each and every one of us possesses uh, to gain in our understanding of how the world really works and becoming more effective at whatever it is that we do. And so, uh, for instance, it was not hard for people uh, like Alan Bloom and, and others in, in the last few decades uh, to observe that universities were heading towards, well, a real mess. They were heading to a point at which ordinary folks would scratch their heads and say, what do we need them for? And, of course, a few years went by, and they look like prophets now because, sure enough, the universities today, you, most thinking people look at what goes on on campus. They take a look at uh, the, the dissolute and depraved personal lives that university encourages young people to live. It examines the utter failure of the university to convey the principles, the history, and the hopes and aspirations of Western civilization. On the contrary, Western civilization, the very civilization that made possible the luxurious circumstances under which most professors, university administrators, and yes, even students actually live, yes, that Western civilization, not only doesn't get taught 
venerated, encouraged, but it gets disparaged and demeaned and denigrated to the point where most people who come out of a university education are filled with grave misgivings at best about Western civilization and outright hostility is more the order of the day. And so, yes, there were prophetic thinkers who saw the decline of the American Academy. They seem like prophets today. But um, there are also people in positions of prominence uh, who lack the ability of prophecy. I'm thinking, again, the most conspicuous person of, of, the, of the past hundred years uh, would be, in my view, uh, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain of England. Uh, Prime Minister Chamberlain came back from a conference in Munich, Germany. It was on the last day of September in 1938. And he landed um, at um, uh, an aerodrome in the north, in the sort of west side of London, uh, an aerodrome which today is um, a golf, <laughs> yes, it's a golf course um, and uh, an industrial estate. The aerodrome is no longer there, but uh, that was where Neville Chamberlain landed. And, and you can see newsreel footage of him waving to the crowds, and he says, uh, famously, he said, peace for our time. Yes, peace. He didn't say peace in our time, by the way, actually, uh, which is how he's usually misquoted. He said peace for our time. And uh, needless to say, it was less than a year from that moment that um, Germany invaded Poland, England and France declared war on Germany, and uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of the people to whom Chamberlain, Prime Minister Chamberlain, addressed his remarks on September the 30th, 1938, uh, would be deeply involved in fighting a brutal, cruel war in which so many of them lost their lives. And so uh, Chamberlain was horribly wrong, horribly wrong. And uh, by contrast, Winston Churchill was prescient. Now, it's interesting. First of all, why did I stress that Chamberlain said peace for our time when he assured England that everyone could go home and sleep soundly knowing that the threat of war is averted and that Herr Hitler is an honorable man and I have secured his commitment that Germany, having, having taken over Czechoslovakia, needs nothing else and all is going to be fine. And so relax, folks. Your Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, has solved the problem and averted the threat of war. All is well. Peace for our time. Why did he do that? Well, I must remember that... Uh, Chamberlain, who had a very uh, uh, upper-class education and upbringing, uh, would have been very, very familiar with the fact that uh, an earlier prime minister, perhaps one of the greatest prime ministers that England ever had, uh, was Benjamin Disraeli. And Benjamin Disraeli came back from the Congress of Berlin 
in 18, I don't know what month, it was somewhere, it was 1878. And um, he came back and he famously said, peace for our time. Uh, there are those who think he said that, uh, if not facetiously, certainly ironically, uh, knowing full well that it was very far from peace for our time, uh, because the uh, Congress of Berlin was an unmitigated catastrophe, where uh, basically none of the powers at the conference England, France, Germany, Russia, Tur uh, Turkey, Italy, none of, none of these countries came away, oh, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, none of them came away feeling that they had what they wanted or what they needed. And of course, the, the Balkan Wars erupted very soon after that. And uh, essentially, you know, that part of, of, of Europe was pretty much in turbulence almost until the very outbreak of World War I in 1914. Um, which can definitely be attributed. You can literally see cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. You can see the chain of events from the Congress of Berlin in 1878 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. But at any rate, there's no question that, uh, that Neville Chamberlain in 1938 would have been well aware of Benjamin Disraeli's famous return in 1878 and uh, he was undoubtedly imitating him when he said, peace for our time. Uh, unfortunately, the results were just as horrific uh, for Neville Chamberlain's ill-fated pronouncement um, as they were for Benjamin Disraeli's, what was it, 60 years earlier? Something like that. Um, so Neville Chamberlain, who had a wonderful education, wonderful education, all the finest schools and the finest university. Uh, by contrast, by contrast, Winston Churchill was a terrible student, a terrible student. And um, his formal education, one could say, uh, was not a fraction of Neville Chamberlain's. And yet, long before 1938, Winston Churchill not only said with considerable assurance and conviction that England would be at war with uh, Germany and Adolf Hitler, um, he actually surreptitiously had already set about um, doing what he could to make England a little more prepared. Um, he was very dismal about England doing nothing when Hitler marched into the Rhineland he was very, very dismal because he said that uh, rather than fighting an inevitable war with Germany at a time of our choosing, we are going to have to end up fighting it at Hitler's choosing under considerably worse circumstances. And he was absolutely right. In other words, it's not hard to see that Churchill was prophetic, entirely prophetic. But how? Well, let me tell you a little more of that when we come back. But, uh, but meanwhile, what I want to do is alert you to a product which I have prepared for you and which directly addresses in far greater depth than I'm going to be able to do in this show the questions we are discussing on this show. The, uh, the resource is an all, it's a, a wonderful audio program called Tower of Power, 
Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And uh, you will be able to uh, see more about this if you go to my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, click on the store, and then just scroll down uh, looking for the Tower of Power. And you can listen to some of it, and you can read a little bit about it there, and I'll explain more as we move along. Because although I'm speaking about prophecy right now, and I'm going to tell you a bit more about it as soon as we come back, we're also going to be looking at some depth into what it is that is responsible for the madness which is permeating not only the university campus, but also the culture that spreads out from the campus. Don't forget, most of the idea makers and thought generators in American society now attended those very universities. And don't forget that when those universities went, let's call it, revolutionary or radical in 19 in the 1960s 68 was was very notable but it had been brewing already well before that the professors at the universities today are the tenured people who burnt libraries and conducted strikes back in the 60s and those people out there who are running politics and entertainment and to a large extent business and many of the institutions of American society other than the military, those people attended those universities. So why don't I tell you more about that in just a few moments. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. When our water heater broke down last month, it was a nightmare. It took five hours for the plumber to show up, and he charged us a couple of hundred bucks just to come out. And then it cost another $1,800 to put in the new water heater. By the time it was all said and done, I felt like I'd been taken. But what else could I do? The smartest thing you can do is get a home warranty from American Residential Warranty. Their home warranties pay to repair or replace all your major appliances when they break. And they will break. And at the worst possible time, call American Residential Warranty right now for free information on home warranties starting at just pennies a day. Don't wait for your refrigerator to stop running or your ceiling fans to stop turning. Call American Residential Warranty right now. Ask how you can save up to 50% on washing and dryer coverage. Just call 1-800-686-3910. That's 1-800-686-3910. Again, 1-800-686-3910. Call now. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show where I do my best to reveal how the world really works so is that you can be more effective in the prophecy needed in your own life. And uh, right now, at a time when uh, America is uh, intoxicated with election fever, perhaps one of the most important areas of understanding um, is the uh, in the in the in almost irresistible, seductive power of socialism. 
uh, the um, audio program with a study guide that I prepared for you. Uh, you can see at my website. It's called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And uh, I'm going to explain just why that is so important. Uh, my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and head over to the store, take a look, uh, run your way down the, the page, and find Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Uh, prophecy, yeah. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, an instance, there is a, a young woman that um, we are friendly with, a, a very extraordinary young woman. Um, she uh, she is uh, a very successful business professional. And uh, when I first met her, um, she had just come out of a seven-year dating relationship. And uh, she was intrigued by my almost my first reaction, and I already had a pretty good sense that she was an unusual person and could take this kind of thing from me, but my first reaction was, uh, I can assure you that if you were my daughter or a member of my congregation, frankly, there is no way I would ever have let you waste seven years of your life on that guy, whoever he was. But we now know that he was a knave, not a knight. He was a scoundrel, not a hero, um, for, for no other reason than he was willing to waste your time to that extent. Waste time? Yes, because he should have known it was no secret that you did want to get married. At any rate, uh, she. this is a number of years ago, she is still not married, uh, and um, and and reflects no no negativity or, or no uh, regrets or no resentment. She's uh, she's bright and cheerful and optimistic. All in all, a, a wonderful woman. So um, a little while ago, she came to tell me of uh, a friend of hers, uh, a, a woman who was with her through college and. Uh, enjoyed spectacular post-college uh, business success. She profited very much from being uh, a qualified woman at a time when the, the culture was pushing for women and for equality. And somehow or another, if you don't have women at the higher executive levels of your company, you are guilty of discrimination, all of that sort of stuff. So uh, frankly, what, what happened is that uh, women became beneficiaries of affirmative action. I'm not saying all women were incompetent. I'm not even saying most were, but there's no question that a number of women uh, got promoted and put in positions that no man who had similar uh, qualifications and skills would ever have come anywhere close to. Um, and uh, at any rate, this particular woman uh, she uh, was doing very well. Uh, she desperately wanted to get married. And uh, you know the usual thing, right? I mean, she was at that point, uh, she was 37, um, very, very successful, making in the uh, order of north of 250000 a year. And uh, she was having a lot of trouble because, well, so she's looking for a 40-year-old-plus guy um, who is equivalent to her in status. Well, I got news for you. Most 40 
28-year-old-plus guys of equivalent socioeconomic status are married. And she was discovering that. And so uh, eventually she, uh, she got married. And this was when my friend, who was also her friend, a mutual friend, if you like, uh, the young woman I was telling you about came uh, to tell me and said, you know, what do you think of this? And obviously I knew that in her mind was the thought, gosh, should I be thinking of doing the same thing? What is the same thing? Well, what her uh, friend had done was uh, to to marry a, uh, a guy who was good looking. Um, he was a little bit younger than her. Uh, but not at all successful financially. And I'm not even saying steady financially. I'm talking about really not so. In other words, he'd had a succession of jobs. He'd had dreams of starting up this company, and that nothing worked, nothing worked. It was all dreams and daydreams and uh, imagina imaginariums and uh, nothing at all. Anyways, uh, she married him and... Um, uh, very, very quickly announced that she was pregnant and she was so excited and so delighted and um, and that her uh, her husband had agreed that uh, he would be, uh, and this is a politically incorrect term, uh, a house husband. No, no, you're not supposed to say that. Uh, the, the correct term is a, uh, a co-parent or um, uh, a, uh, there's another term they use which eludes me for the moment, but whatever it is, and she asked me uh, what I thought of, of this situation. I asked a few questions that, uh, that shed a little bit more light. I needed to get just a bit more of a sense of personalities involved and, um, and a few other things, historic. But at the end of it, um, I said to her, I really don't think this is necessarily an avenue that you should embrace, particularly because uh, she's going to be divorced within the next two years. And she looked at me and said, no. She said, Rabbi, you haven't seen these two together. You should just see the googly eyes they make at each other and the constant they're constantly holding on to each other. She says, no, Rabbi, they're deeply in love. And uh, I said to her, just a repetition of what I just said. I said, uh, I can assure you that their marriage is not long for this world. Um, two years is the, is the outside, probably less. Well, as it turned out, uh, it was about six months after this conversation, um, she called me up and asked if she can uh, come over and chat. And I said, of course. And she came over and she said, uh, I, I'm not walking out here until you tell me how you knew. Um, yes, indeed. Uh, she's just she just called me and told me that uh, they're getting divorced, and she's so upset and so terrible, and she's expecting a baby and all. All, the, all right, fine. Um, how did I know? Well, my friend thought that I was a prophet, but of course I wasn't. It just happens that in this area of marriage, I really do know how the world really works. Not because of any brilliance on my part, but uh, I paid very close attention while I was being taught ancient Jewish wisdom by the world's very best teachers, and uh, I was determined to understand it and absorb it and wrap myself around it so that I really would understand how the world really works in the area of male-female relationships. And so given what I knew, although I'd never met her friend or her husband, 
um, given what I knew and what I was able to extract and uh, the picture that was painted for me, it was pretty clear that <laughs> there was no way this was going to last for very long. Um, what, what actually happened? Well, exactly what I thought would happen, frankly. And I'm not saying that for self-aggrandizement, but I am saying it because I want to um, establish as persuasively as I can that if you understand how the world really works, you can see into the future. It's as simple as that. And uh, in, in this case, what, what happened was obviously that uh, um, this, this guy uh, was feeling um, uh, emasculated. Um, he, was, he was feeling taken care of. He was feeling like a kept man. Um, and uh, he, he needed something for his ego. What he needed and what he found was an affair. He'd apparently been conducting it for quite a while before his wife discovered. And even then, once she discovered, even then, she was considering overlooking at it, overlooking it. He, you know, he promised it wouldn't happen again. And, uh, but it turned out in the end that although she was willing to forgive him and, and I mean, her desperate desire to believe that this was really all going to work out made her forgo any grip on reality that she might ever have had. Um, and she was willing to forgive him and, and to resume. But then he walked out on her. He found a better deal. <laughs> so, uh, sad, right? Nothing to laugh at, but... Uh, it was funny how my friend really was convinced that I was some sort of prophet because I told her with, with, you know, with great certainty that it was, it was going to end. They were going to be divorced, and uh, they were a little sooner than I anticipated, but always difficult to, to call the timing exactly. You've got to be a really good prophet um, in order to, to pull that off. And so uh, um, what... Uh, you know, how how did uh, how did uh, how did uh, Winston Churchill understand during the 1930s? Well, because he understood how the world really worked. He understood the nature of bad people. He understood exactly what Hitler was about. He understood politics. He understood reality. Above all, he understood that power beats paper every single time, and that if you do want peace, you can only have it by demonstrating the willingness to fight for it. And as soon as you reveal a fear of fighting, you can be assured without any shadow of a doubt that peace is precisely what you will not have. You will become the rightful prey of the bandits of the world. I mean, Shakespeare, excuse me, uh, Churchill understood this perfectly well. Uh, Neville Chamberlain did not understand how the world really works. Uh, my friend did not know how the world really worked on marriage. If she did, she wouldn't have dated a guy for seven years. So she thought I was a prophet, but I wasn't. I just knew how the world really worked when it came to male-female relationships. And uh, when uh, people like Alan Bloom and many, many others, Harvey Mansfield and others, uh, recognized ages ago, years ago, that the American University was headed to a precipice, um, and, uh, and, and again, you know, they understood how the world really worked, particularly in the area of universities and how they are administered and how they are run. 
And so we are at the point now where if you read your papers and watch your television and keep an eye on what's going on, you will see young people, right, uh, in their late teens and early 20s who are the beneficiaries of perhaps the most luxurious and expensive education that Western civilization has ever made available in the last thousand years. And they conduct themselves as if they were a bunch of cerebrally compromised cretins, paying attention to what they say, how they say it, what they're doing. It's incredible. You cannot believe that these are people possessed of a brain. But wait, they are. But for the very most remarkable demonstration of prophecy, I think we really have to go to somebody else entirely. What we're going to do is go to one of the greatest novelists of all time, a man who has five great novels to his name. And, you know, I, I seldom recommend books because I cherish your time almost as much as I do my own. And I certainly do not want to send you off uh, to read some book that I've become infatuated with, uh, which has no real bearing on your life and doesn't give you any major investment for your time um, or major return for the time you invested, I, I don't recommend books, but this one I will recommend. What book is it? I'll tell you that coming back. Meanwhile, make a note, rabbidaniellappin.com, and the resource I want you to go and explore, see what you think about it, is called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. I'll be back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. A former Soviet agent says he has found evidence that Joseph Stalin spied on Mao Zedong and others. He spied on them. A top secret program where they analyzed their excrement to construct a psychological profile. My first question was why. My second question was why. My third question was, what are you out of your effing mind? The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Welcome back, everybody. We continue with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, yep, that's me, does my utmost, working diligently throughout the entire week to fulfill my solemn mission of making absolutely certain that the time you invest with me has an extremely high rate of return. So thanks for being here as I reveal how the world really works. And we're talking a little bit about prophecy. Uh, we finished off the last segment with me uh, speaking about how seldom it is that I make book recommendations. And uh, today's going to be an exception. Today is indeed an opportunity on this show where I am going to recommend an author, and I'm going to recommend 
two of his books. I'm going to say at the outset that uh, I suspect many of you will try out this recommendation, uh, but I also think that many of you will give up, and that's going to be a shame because you'll give up just a little bit too early. Uh, it's, uh, it's not easy going, but like almost anything of real value, real effort is involved. So I'm giving that to you as a heads up. Uh, this is not watching a romantic comedy on television. This is not reading some lighthearted, frivolous fun. Uh, this is not paging through a magazine. This is careful reading, which uh, requires concentration, and you probably will only want to do a few pages at a time, particularly if uh, you read in bed before you go to sleep, which uh, is always a far, far better thing than watching television in bed before you go to sleep. But uh, that is for another discussion. Uh, who is the author? His name is Dostoevsky. Um, his first name, F-Y-O-D-O-R, Fyodor is the Russian uh, way it's pronounced. I think it is the Russian version of Peter. Uh, Peter, of course, a name that comes from uh, the, the Latin and the Greek for the word rock, a rock, something strong and certain. And uh, it goes back even earlier than that to Hebrew, although not specifically meaning a rock there. But um, again, for another time. Right now, uh, Dostoevsky was a Russian novelist. He lived in the middle of the 19th century. He lived from 1821 to, I think, 1881, about 60 years. And um, he wrote five great novels, but the two of them that I am going to recommend, one is just a recommendation, the other one I'm recommending and talking about, the first one I recommend is The Brothers Karamazov. I'm not going to tell you um, a whole lot about the, the book. Um, I'm just going to say that it is, it's part of what an educated person needs to have read. Um, the, the insights and the uh, understanding. And that, after all, is what makes a great novelist. You know, not somebody who shocks middle-class conventions and shakes bourgeois sensibilities. No, anybody can do that. Uh, you know, it takes no great art to drag a corpse across a stage. Uh, it takes considerable art to convey profound and powerful ideas without overwhelming you, without shocking you, without imprinting your soul with unpleasant and indelible images. Uh, and that's one of the great advantages of reading a book over watching the images on a film or a DVD or a television. Very big difference. Um, one of the, the main things about the uh, Dostoevsky book, The Brothers Karamazov, is the, the famous phrase, if God does not exist, everything is permitted. Now, um, that is actually found in um, in the book, in the book The Brothers Karamazov. It happens to be, for your information, in part four, book 11, chapter four. It's titled A Hymn and a Secret. Why am I so specific about that? Because these days, with the onslaught of uh, secular militancy, uh, the, 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 you will find that if you quote that 
uh, Dostoevsky line from the brothers Karamazov, uh, namely, if God does not exist, everything is permitted, you'll often hear people retorting, oh, no, that's not true. He never said that anywhere. He didn't say it at all. Well, uh, I can assure you he absolutely did in that, in that exact location. Uh, but the reason people think that, and I'm, I'm telling you this because when you go and get yourself a copy of the Brothers Karamazov, whether it's from the library or downloaded on your Kindle or wherever you're getting it, um, I want you to specifically avoid a particular translator, Constant, excuse me, Constance Garnett. Uh, did the uh, it's, she, it's one of the most popular versions that she did translating the Russian don't go with hers uh, it's a bad bad translation how do I know <laughs> do I know Russian no of course not uh, it's simply that I um, have studied it and uh, explored and, and and spoken to to people who are Russian scholars and I understand what's wrong with uh, Constant Garnett's translation. She's tried to essentially remove the solemnity and specificity of Dostoevsky's words. She sort of tried her best to, it's as if she said to herself, let me take a heavy Russian novel and do my best to turn it into something lighthearted. Well, of course, she never succeeds in turning it into something lighthearted, but she also damages the novel very badly. And in her translation, uh, that phrase, which which appears exactly the way I just said it, if God does not exist, everything is permitted, that is exactly how it appears in the Russian, and that's exactly how it appears in better English translations. Um, for instance, uh, Richard P. Veer's translation is good. Uh, there's a Russian woman who translated it. Larissa Volokonsky translated it. Those, those are both good. But just stay away from constant, uh, Constance Garnett's translation of the Brothers Karamazov. With that said, um, it's, uh, uh, it's very much a worthwhile read. Okay, that is the Brothers Karamazov. But that's not the one I'm really talking about. Remember, I'm still talking prophecy. Uh, the the version the, the book of Dostoevsky I'm talking about is called the possessed. Um, some of the translations call it demons, and you can see right the, the similarity between possessed and demons. Uh, demons is, to the best of my understanding, a far better translation of the Russian than possessed. But anyway, you will you will find it either as possessed um, or as uh, um, either as possessed or as demons. And um, I'm also just checking one thing, and I'm going to say that if you can possibly avoid the Constance Garnett translation of that book as well, I'd strongly recommend. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you are going to go to the trouble of reading a big, hard book, and believe me, you will get ample return on your investment. You won't, you won't be sorry. But if you are going to make that investment, please go uh, for a translation other, other than um, Constance Garnett. Um, there's another translation by uh, David Margish. Anyway, th there's plenty. There's plenty good ones. It's it's just Constance Garnett's that uh, you really want to avoid if you possibly can. All right. Now, why why is this so interesting? Because 
uh, Dostoevsky wrote Demons or the Possessed in 1871, when it first began appearing. I think it appeared in serialized form over a period of, of a short while. Uh, but at any rate, basically, he'd written it by 1871. And um, here's what's so fascinating. Uh, it's my, 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 the hair at the back of my neck stands up, you know, as, as I'm even talking to you now, because it's so eerie. It's so amazing. What Dostoevsky does in his book, The Possessed, speaks about the destruction of socialism and communism's revolutionary spirit, what they do to the lives of ordinary people. And he literally paints a picture of the Russian Revolution, which is not going to happen until 1917. So it's years into the future. He didn't live to see it. And yet, yeah, he, he died eight, uh, 10 years after he wrote The Possessed or The Demons. And, um, and so 1871, he writes this book, and it's unbelievable it is so accurate. It is so frightening. It is so disturbing in terms of how right he gets the willingness of these revolutionaries, the Trotskys and the Lenins, the, their willingness to destroy the lives of people while they speak in elevated terms of the doing this for the sake of the people and giving the people and you know and so he he creates this marvelous piece of art this incredible piece of literature this most remarkable book uh, possessed or demons that uh, that highlights and clarifies what's going on and gives you insights into what is happening now while you're reading that I want you to think about organizations like, um, do you remember that um, Occupy Wall Street organization? You remember that? And you remember the fecal assault they engaged in? I, I, I don't want to even be more specific. It's filthy, but that's what those people did. They're horrible people. Uh, how's about the uh, Black Lives Matter movement? Is that something that's sort of working out really well for black people? Is that doing a lot of good for black people? Or how, how about, how about uh, the um, socialistically minded uh, government people in city, states, and federal government who put so many people in government housing? Do you remember Cabrini Green in Chicago? Right? That was all done for the people monstrously high rates of taxation were imposed on hard-working American families in order to underwrite, in order to afford that government housing into which they put so many families. And that was for the people. How did that work out for the folks who lived there? Right? In other words, socialism asks to be judged on its rhetoric and its intentions. Socialism seems to care for people in the abstract, but it doesn't care anything at all for real human beings. And all of this is brought out powerfully, eloquently, and unforgettably 
in Dostoevsky's book, Demons or the Possessed. A remarkable thing is that um, it was so accurate. How, how did he do this? The revolution in Russia didn't start until the 20th century. He died in 1881. How did he do it? Answer. Um, so the question stands, how did Dostoevsky uh, prophesy the Russian revolution? Because that's exactly what he did. Uh, you cannot read it without saying to yourself, it's, it's unbelievable. How on earth could this have been written so many years before the events it describes? How did he do it? That's the big question. I explained to you how it was that uh, Winston Churchill was able to prophesy the intentions of Adolf Hitler, uh, whereas Chamberlain was not. I told you how, in a much, in, to a much lesser extent, I was able to prophesy the impending divorce of, uh, of that woman who was a friend of, of, our, uh, of our mutual friend. But how did Dostoevsky do this? That is going to be tackled coming right up. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Buck Sexton. Because it's for the good of the country. It would be a selfless act. And I was seeing some discussion over the weekend in the interwebs. People saying that the only way that Rubio or Cruz manages to win this thing at this point is if one of them goes to the other with an offer that makes sense and they unite against Trump. Buck Sexton. Weekdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Blaze Radio Network On Demand with Rabbi Daniel Lappin. We're back, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Thanks so much for being part of it. And we move right along with the answer to the question of how on earth did Dostoevsky, in his book, Demons or the Possessed, predict almost every detail of the Russian Revolution, which was only going to happen in the first years of the 20th century, when he wrote his book in 1871? And the answer is, because Dostoevsky, well, you know the answer, don't you? Come on, let's say it all together. Dostoevsky knows how the world really works. That's right. He understood the nature of revolution. And don't forget, uh, he'd had an opportunity already to see what had happened with the French Revolution. And once the French Revolution was over, don't for a moment think that everything went quiet and that Europe was asleep or tranquil with all the European citizens, with everybody in France and Italy and Germany and Russia, all minding their own business and taking care of their own affairs. No. Actually, there was almost non-stop revolutionary foment in, in Poland, in Germany, in Italy, um, it, it, in the universities. It was being driven primarily by the universities, by professors, uh, to some extent by journalists, essentially uh, people in the intelligentsia for the most part, 
um, although there were workers involved as well as the idea of communism began to, to take shape out of this revolutionary turmoil uh, which, which overwhelmed Europe in the years following the, uh, the, the French Revolution. Now, just before the French Revolution, in actually in the year 1776, um, there was a guy in Germany called Adam Weishaupt um, who started an organization called the Illuminati. Now, it's, um, it's, it's popular among many circles, I think, to poo-poo it and dismiss, oh, the Illuminati, who, you know, you, you're worried about these uh, imaginary conspiracy theories. Well, uh, the Illuminati was uh, far from imaginary and uh, far from a theory. Uh, they, they really were absolutely dedicated to overthrowing what? Well, uh, they were trying to establish a secular faith, a new way of structuring society that did away once and for all with the Judeo-Christian tradition that everybody knew back then lay at the foundations of civilization. You see, what I want to point out to you is that today, in the 21st century in the United States of America, you, you know how some of these um, very funny television shows take a camera out into the street and they ask people questions? And granted, they edit out the intelligent-sounding responses if they get any, and the ones they choose to air are the ones that highlight abysmal ignorance and uh, an appalling cluelessness. But uh, even, even given that, um, if you were to, uh, to say to people, you know, what do you think about the biblical foundation of, of our culture, of American society? People would shake their heads, they'd roll their eyes, they'd laugh. They wouldn't have the faintest idea of what you're talking about because evidence of it is already um, so concealed that most people are completely unaware of how much of what we enjoy in day-to-day -day living in America is due entirely to the existing structures, to the years and years of rules and rituals and restraints that owe their existence to biblical foundations of, Jude, of Judaism and Christianity. I'll just give you one example, manners. Do you like living in a place where people have manners? Where does that come from? You know, why is it that uh, when you stand in a tightly packed elevator, most people are not combing their hair or scratching themselves or uh, rubbing themselves most you know why not well because we all grew up in a culture that was based on the first few chapters of genesis that stress so emphatically the difference between human beings and animals and that's why when you as a child behaved with what they used to call bad manners your mother and my mother probably both responded exactly the same. And they said, don't be like an animal. Or if you slurped your soup noisily, 
instead of eating your soup properly, your mother would say, stop eating like an animal. And we all understood that because it was critical that human beings distinguish themselves from animals. That was part of the foundation of civilization. And almost everywhere we turn, whether it is the existence of, uh, of medicine, whether it is the existence of a functioning economy, even the idea of privacy that we Americans take so seriously, again, all of it rooted in the culture. Um, the idea of a three-part form of government, right? Straight out of the, the book of Isaiah, uh, the idea of a legislature and an executive um, and a judiciary, straight out of the book of Isaiah. Uh, and so it is. Again and again, we realize how much we owe to our culture, but generally speaking, most people don't. However, back in 1776, in 1800, in 1850, people then knew how foundational the Bible was in shaping their civilization. And so when Adam Weishaupt and the Illuminati um, said, we want something completely fresh and different. We want something that takes us away from religion. We want a, a new vision for society that owes nothing to the Bible and owes nothing to God. Everybody knew what they were talking about. And it began to be very fashionable and very popular, uh, particularly, again, among the intelligentsia and particularly on the university campus. Well, uh, it was only a few short years uh, before the French Revolution arrived. And um, the French Revolution, how, where did that come from? Well, uh, largely because Mirabeau had been a French ambassador to Germany, and he had come into contact with the Illuminati and Weishaupt and brought back these ideas. And in fact, as you know, Mirabeau is one of the names that, uh, uh, that, that is foundational to the French Revolution. And the French Revolution came along and, um, and was enormously attractive at first with liberty, equality, and fraternity. Well, uh, for the moment, I, I don't actually know what fraternity means. I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice sentiment. Let's all be fraternal. Let's be brothers. Uh, what does it actually mean? Mm, not so sure. That, and, I, and frankly, I don't think anyone else did either, but it sounded good. Then we, we have liberty, equality, fraternity, liberty, and equality. Unfortunately, nobody realized in time that liberty and equality are incompatible. You cannot have them both. You've got to make up your mind. If you want liberty, then people have the liberty to work hard and raise themselves. Other people have the liberty to lie under a tree and eat grapes. Everybody has the liberty to live their lives as they choose. One thing you can be sure, and that is equality will not be the result. And so you have to choose. If you want equality, that's fine, but you have to banish liberty. In order to achieve equality, you will have to ride roughshod over the liberties of all those people you want to make equal. And if, on the other hand, you want liberty, then you have to live without equality. Unfortunately, the French Revolution set itself up for failure from the very outset by saying liberty, equality, I won't try the French, but liberty, equality, and fraternity. Uh, sorry, not going to work. You are doomed to disappointment. 
Well, it was a lot more than disappointment they got. And, um, and that means that um, one of the things I have to do right now <clears throat> is um, disillusion you if you were subjected to a very conventional education in a geek. Um, and for those of you who may have just joined the show, a geek is a government indoctrination camp. Uh, for many, many years, they used to be known as public schools. But uh, then, as the population wised up, we began to refer to them as geeks. And so if you happen to have been educated in a geek, then you were raised to believe that the French Revolution was this wonderful demonstration of people against tyranny. Ordinary folks rose up and struck a blow for liberty and equality and fraternity. What a wonderful thing. This is what brought democracy to Europe. Look, um, I'm afraid that that simply isn't true. It's just not true. Uh, one of the key books on the French Revolution is called Citizen uh, by Simon Sharma. And uh, it's, a, um, uh, it's a very important book. Again, I, I don't recommend you to, to read. I think you should try and flip through it and glance at it, but it's big and heavy and long and dense. Uh, however, uh, it is impossible to understand the French Revolution without at least getting a little bit of a picture of uh, the, the, the enormous destruction that, uh, that, that, that it caused. And look, I mean, it certainly, <laughs> um, the American Revolution formed America. There's no question that the French Revolution did form France, so much so uh, that until this present time, there is a whole lot about France that is the consequence of the trauma and drama um, of those years of uh, revolutionary destruction. Um, I've told you before, Mao Zedong was famously asked uh, by Henry Kissinger, I believe it was, uh, what is his opinion of the French Revolution? And uh, his immediate response was, too early to tell. <laughs> uh, however, the fact is that, um, that in America, when we celebrate, uh, and you know, a number of years ago we celebrated uh, the 200th anniversary in 1976, um, and uh, it, was, it was a wonderful celebration, a celebration of the French Revolution, although they keep doing it, you know, Bastille Day and all of that stuff. Um, well, um, there's a lot of ambivalence about it. They go ahead and they do it. But let's not lose sight of the fact that it was the French Revolution that inspired Stalin and Hitler. That's right. Don't forget that the Nazis, well, Nazi stands for National Socialist. The idea that Nazis are the creation of the right, you know, there's a lot of confusion about the use of the word left wing and right wing, but make no mistake about it that both the Nazis and the Soviets um, were socialists. Look, um, the truth is that uh, a lot of historical information is now coming out that after all the fun and games of storming the Bastille, what happened was very grim, very brutal, and extremely unpleasant for the overwhelming majority of people who got caught up in the fury and frenzy of the French Revolution. And I'm not just talking about uh, the overzealous guillotining 
uh, or the fact that uh, Marie Antoinette's uh, head was removed. Uh, no, there's um, – and by the way, even that was extremely cruel. Uh, it was done deliberately in a way to deprive uh, the woman of any dignity. It was barbaric. It was essentially – it was like a, uh, a bullfight, uh, except people's lives. Uh, yeah, look, this, th there is no way to put a good face on uh, on the few on the excesses of the French Revolution. Um, Robespierre. Um, Robespierre was a dictator. Uh, he camouflaged himself as a sort of revolutionary freethinker, but he was a dictator. And uh, you got to know that he caused immense massacres. As a matter of fact, um, and again, Simon Sharma's book is historically absolutely unassailable. In 1793, Robespierre took a whole bunch of soldiers and he literally began slaughtering his way across Western France. Uh, conservative figures are that he murdered and massacred 500,000 people minimum. Um, and again, if, if you're curious about this, you know, if, if you're still infected by what you got from your gick uh, and you think about, oh, what a wonderful thing, just look up Vendée region, V-E-N-D-E-E. -E. That's a part of uh, France in the West um, where a lot of the peasants just wanted to be left alone. They really just, just let them live their lives. Robespierre came in there and bloodily massacred priests, women, children, the farmers. It, it was unbelievable. It, um, there is no way the, to describe the French Revolution in positive uh, colors. That's, I can tell you that for absolute, uh, with absolute certainty. All righty. Uh, I can't end the segment without uh, reminding you that uh, – all of this is to provide you with a little bit of a background as to um, the ability that uh, that, that uh, Dostoevsky had in predicting the Russian Revolution. How? Well, uh, it actually goes back a lot earlier than the French Revolution. It actually goes back to the Bible and the Tower of Babel. That's right. In other words, the roots of revolution, the source of socialistic frenzy, actually lies with the Tower of Babel. So uh, head over to the website, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, L-A-P-I-N dot com, and uh, head over to the store. Look for something called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, and uh, there you'll be able to read about it, listen to a bit about it, and decide if this that I prepared for you is a good investment of your dollars. Not talking a lot of money, by the way, but, uh, but it, you know, it, it's money. Go over there and take a look, see what you think. Quick break, be right back. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. And I love Ted Cruz, and I admire him, and I'm for him. If tomorrow I thought he believed in something unconstitutional, I would leave Ted. I support the timeless, moral, democratic, quintessential American pillar of the Constitution of the United States. So that means I'm for Ted Cruz. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Well, if you want to know how the world really works, and I presume you do, one of the things you're, you, you do have to get a hang on is, is history. Uh, you've got to go back and look at the way things played out. Um, history is, is a wonderful area of study uh, and to read about. And, and there's wonderful stuff, by the way. History, when, when you and I were at Gicks, uh, history was, um, oh, uh, for the most part, dry and difficult. It was dates, but uh, there really are some wonderful readable books on history that give you an enormous head start in understanding how the world really works. Um, back to the French Revolution, I want to give you a little more information on that, just because I feel a need to overcome and help you get past the popular information on that, that which everyone likes believe, oh, this was such a great time, and it was so marvelous, and, oh, to be alive in those glorious days. Well, the truth is that uh, the majority of France did not in any way support the radical change of the revolution. It was all the work of, frankly, middle-class agitators in Paris. And, um, and, and also, nobody should, should believe that the blood, the bloodletting, the Robespierre's horrible, murderous um, pogroms of French citizens um, had to do with national security. Uh, it's, it's simply not true. Uh, as a matter of fact, France was, was perfectly secure and had armies already on the offensive outside its borders. Um, so we, we have to sort of get clear that 1789 was not 1776. The American Revolution, uh, and I don't even think it should be called a revolution, I prefer calling it the War of Independence, um, because it doesn't have the characteristics of revolution. Uh, 1789, on the other hand, a very different story. And the crazy thing is that uh, in exactly the same way that so much of modern America owes uh, its, its shape to the way the, re the War of Independence sculpted it more than 200 years ago. Similarly, in France today, uh, the, the revolution is not forgotten history. Um, and, uh, and, and you'll see, I mean, it's, it's very popular for French politicians uh, to describe themselves as republicans. And that means pro-revolution, because that was what the, the, the revolutionaries were, you know, talking about. Well, we don't want a monarchy, we want a republic. So republic, and they mean sort of pro-revolution. It's, it's unpopular today in France to tell the truth, as I'm telling you now, about the origin, the true nature, and the horrible circumstances of really what took place in, the, uh, in those dreadful few years after 1789. Um, the um, um, I, again, I, I just want to stress that uh, that the French Revolution is without question uh, the inspirational, uh, and even more than that, there's a direct line of revolutionary thinking that links uh, the French Revolution with what uh, Stalin did in Russia and what the Nazis did in Germany. There's no question about it. And so, um, uh, 
So, uh, at any rate, I mean, you know, I, I don't ever expect to ask you to take things at face value, uh, but I, I do hope to stimulate your curiosity uh, to dig just a little more deeply into this if, provided you still uh, are um, held in sway uh, by what was told to you when back when you were a kid at a gig. Um, and, and so... If, if that is the case, just go back and, and see that Robespierre, the hero of the French Revolution, is really nothing other than the grandfather of Bolshevism in Russia. And, uh, and just look at it and you'll see that the glorious revolution of the French actually became a savage, murderous, cruel civil war that took the lives of huge numbers of Frenchmen. Um, again, that is nothing that happened during the American War of Independence. It's nothing like that which happened in what's called the English Civil War in the 1600s. No, but it is what happened in the French Revolution, and it is what happened in the Russian Revolution, linked to it by a line of revolutionary activity. And so it is true that the, uh, the book, Demons or the Possessed by Dostoevsky, uh, predicted the Russian Revolution with, with great accuracy. But you see, he was able to do that because, number one, he knew the entire story of the Tower of Babel. He knew what that meant. And he was able to understand, as he looked back at the French Revolution, he was able to understand that a crucial element of this kind of secular revolution is a war against God. And that's why both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution were profoundly atheistic. The French Revolution's enemy was the Catholic Church, and the Russian Revolution utterly obliterated the Russian Orthodox Church, which, by the way, under, um, under President Putin, has come roaring back with President Putin's active encouragement. And so uh, I must tell you that I believe myself, I think it is a big mistake to agree with the um, government and the administration here that Putin is the biggest problem in the whole world. I, I think that uh, we, are, uh, we have a president who is a, a very arrogant man and a man who is uh, very petty, uh, very inclined to remember insults and to seek opportunities to pay them back. And um, uh, the, the Russian president, frankly, made a monkey of the American, and he's never been forgiven. And so although the American president has a uh, feud, a, a real argument with the Russian president, I don't. I must tell you, I really don't. He seized Ukraine. Yes, he did. And this, why, this should worry me. Why? Well, he's now going to take NATO countries as well. He's going to go and take Lithuania and Latvia. Well, you may have enhanced your prophetic skills by listening to the uh, podcast this far, 
but I, I got to tell you, I'm not really sure you are yet at the point of being able to predict with any reliability what uh, Putin will or will not do. If he does, then that's a totally different uh, ball game. But at the moment, talking only about what's happened, not what we think might or might not happen, I wasn't in the least bit bothered by his taking of, of Ukraine. I don't think it's very different from what we would do if uh, – if uh, Castro decided to try and take over Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, or if um, before uh, President Carter so fecklessly handed over the uh, the Panama Canal, if um, if if some group in Central America would have tried to capture the canal, I think we probably would have made absolutely certain to recover it. So, uh, me personally, I've got to tell you, I I don't I don't see a big problem at all. With, uh, with Mr. Putin. But it is so that uh, religion is coming back under his administration. Uh, the Soviets banished it as surely as the French re revolutionaries banished it there as well. And so Dostoevsky understands that uh, the revolution is a revolution against the ultimate concept of authority. What is the ultimate concept of authority? God. That's what it is. And that's why it is that uh, the English monarchy is also the head of the church because people understood in the Western tradition, and I mean, we're not talking about Chaka, the Zulu chief, right, who, who was uh, the head of the Zulus and, and a very effective head, I should tell you, uh, by means of ruthless cruelty and brutality. I think he just shocked people into into accepting him. But we're talking about in the Western tradition, uh, the monarchy is strictly understood to be in in uh, in lieu of God. Uh, the king is the king because God said it's okay, and that's one of the reasons that the Western tradition has royalty wearing a crown with jewels in it and shaped in such a way as to show. Uh, rays of light coming out of it. In other words, a sort of a halo idea. All of this a replay of the biblical account of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with rays of light beaming out of his head. In other words, he was appointed by God. And as a matter of fact, um, in uh, Deuteronomy, Moses is actually alluded to as the first king of Israel. And... Um, I don't want to, to go into the details uh, of that right now. That will distract me and take me off topic. But uh, the idea that Moses, first king of Israel, revealed himself as having rays of light shooting out of his head, that is the reason why in the Western, biblically-based tradition, kings wear crowns that seem to show throw off light because it's understood that they rule because God says it's okay. And that's why you have to have the, 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 royal, uh, the royalty in England is also the head of the church. The queen is the head of the Church of England. Got to be, because it's all part of the same structure. In other words, throwing off authority, you've got to throw off God, because that is the original source of the idea of authority. Uh, the whole idea of uh, the fifth commandment being honor your father and your mother. That commandment is on the tablet that seems to be devoted 
to things having to do with our relationship with God, whereas the second tablet, Commandments 6 through 10, uh, no adultery, no, uh, no killing, no stealing, um, no coveting, all of those things are things that govern our relationship with our fellow human beings. But things having to do with the relationship between us and God on the first one, well, why does that include honoring parents? Why? Well, because, again, the very first occasion that a little baby human being discovers the existence of the idea of authority is his parents. One of the reasons that the secular left wants to hurt the relationship between parents and children is because it wants to eliminate that form of authority, leaving only one authority, and that's government. That's the concept. And so for the kind of absolute power that secular revolutionaries want, which is the absolute power of the little g of government, they absolutely have to pulverize the power of the big G of God. That's what they do. That's exactly what they have to do. RabbiDanielLappin.com is the, uh, the website. The name of the resource for you to take a look at is called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. I'll be right back. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Coming up today on Patents Do. Supposedly, if it's Trump Cruz, Cruz wins. Mm-hmm. By like 12 points. I mean, because yeah, it's, not uh, it's not even close. So uh, I, it would be nice to get to that point. I don't know what the hell Ben Carson is doing. I think he's made a pact with, with uh, Trump or Rubio or whoever to try to continue to stay in the race to continue to hurt Ted Cruz. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, you are back. You are there. I am here. I'm grateful we're together on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Reminding you that the more that things change, the more we have to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that we only have one choice as a society. You either have to submit to the authority of the little G of government, or you get to submit to the authority of the big G of God. But if you banish the latter, you will be saddled with the former. And Dostoevsky understood that the revolutionary fervor that burns so bright in the brains of human beings has as its root the age-old dream of shrugging off the yoke of God's rules. That's what it's all about. And that's why it is that the most ardent and uh, aggressive left-wing activism in America for, for many, 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 many years has been the university campus. And in exactly the same way, where is the most aggressively secular place in American society? The university campus. Where is the only place that your child's religious beliefs will be rudely mocked, assailed, and challenged? There's only one place, the university campus. 
And so these things go very, very closely together. And as a result of its commitment to revolutionary drama, the American university has fallen down on its main job, which is transmitting values to students of our own society. That's what its job is. Everything else is secondary. Why on earth would we have tax money going to student loans and tax money going to help you? Why? If they're not communicating our cultural values to ensure that another generation maintains the tranquility and stability that has been part of the American tradition, what good are they to us? And the same question can be asked of geeks which also fail on their, their job. But I'm talking primarily about universities now, mainly because it was universities that served as the crucibles that gave birth to the revolutionary excitement that led uh, from the French Revolution all the way through the uh, revolutionary spirits in, in France and in Italy and in Poland and in um, parts, Catholic parts of Germany, Prussia, and Russia. It's interesting that uh, the revolutionary spirit between the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution never did that well in countries that had experienced the Protestant Reformation. Uh, the reason? Because it was there, for instance, that uh, England, which had experienced some of it, uh, and America, which had experienced the Protestant Reformation, or in, or in other words, was a was uh, was was a consequence of that, um, had already sort of taken on the question of challenge while challenging church authority, while at the same time still retaining loyalty to God. And the other thing is that countries like England and America that had a uh, parliamentary tradition were also less vulnerable to the spirit of revolution that swept Europe during those 1800s. Very turbulent period, very turbulent indeed. And so uh, uh, universities played their role then, just as they are now. It's a destructive role. Um, it is a role that uh, not only can turn your child into someone you simply don't recognize, but is, in fact, turning your country into a country you don't recognize. And so uh, universities have been doing this, as you know. Well, I, I take us back to the 60s, of course. Uh, one could argue it was before that, but um, nonetheless, they've been adding to the curriculum uh, different kinds of groups and different kinds of traditions and um, they've created courses of study that not only contain no values whatsoever, and you know what courses we're talking about, but um, actually undermine a Western tradition. And so in, what they did is they banished, they got rid of the curriculum that, uh, that, that covered the Western culture, and... Um, and instead, they've ended up with university curricula that emancipate uh, themselves from any tradition at all. In other words, the essence of revolution, whose foundation was laid in the Tower of Babel. 
faculty no longer have a commitment to traditional values in any way at all. Uh, universities do not provide young people with any healthy role models. I mean, I don't have to tell you much of this, do I? And it's it's so bad. Uh, the only morality, the only expression of morality you'll see on the university campus today is um, morality focused on external things, like we've got to do something about racism or South Africa or Israel or whatever is the popular public whipping boy of the moment. You understand, of course, that the essence of biblically-based, uh, God-shaped um, uh, morality is that we focus on restraining our own appetites as individuals. That before we try and fix Argentina or before we try to fix uh, um, anywhere else in the world at all, we first of all put a restraint on ourselves. We improve our own moralities. That's part of a biblical tradition. You'll see none of that in university. On the contrary, uh, the, the, the license and um, complete concupiscence that seems to permeate every corner of university culture today could hardly be at greater odds with Judeo-Christian morality. All of this Dostoevsky knew and understood. And he also knew and understood one other part of that, and that is that the biblical tradition strongly encourages, well, how can I, how can I, it's more than encourages, uh, it advocates emphatically against violence. And so not surprisingly, the Western tradition, based on biblical morality, substituted ballots for bullets. Dem democracy grew under the Bible. Democracy didn't grow in Africa. Democracy didn't grow in Asia. Democracy didn't grow under Islam. It grew under the Bible because violence is eschewed in the biblical tradition. And it's also um, discouraged in the Western tradition. So it, it's not an accident that the revolutionary fervor, the essence of socialism, in its desperate drive to undermine God and the biblical underpinnings of Western culture, use violence, almost sacramentally. And I say that because many of the remarkable histories of the French Revolution and of the Russian Revolution and of the revolutions that took place in France and in Germany and in Poland and in Italy in the intervening years between of 1790, 1789, and uh, 1917, all of them, all these histories speak um, compellingly about how the mood of a crowd changed once blood was drawn. And in fact, um, the, uh, the story in Dostoevsky's Possessed um, revolves around a real-life story of a, a student who was murdered in the um, uh, in the Russian early in the Russian Revolution, and how uh, many were murdered? But there's a specific case of a, a young man called Ivanov, um, who uh, was murdered, and and he was murdered strictly because they wanted his flowing blood to exert its power 
upon the masses, or at least the people involved in that particular shedding of the blood. But whether it was the French Revolution or the Russian or in between, all the historians write very persuasively of how the entire mood of the mob was changed by the appearance of blood. And, um, and I really, I must say, I, I tend to, to think, and I'm not going to go into it in this particular show, but I tend to think of uh, the Bible sacrifices and, uh, and, the, uh, and also the um, extent uh, to which Western civilization is, or at least Western elites and intelligentsia, are in sway to Islamic violent tendencies. Uh, there is no question that um, that Western democracies tend to produce people who are less equipped to deal with violence. It's one of the reasons that uh, military training for all men in a society has an enormous advantage, which is that uh, it means that our population is made up of men who are not paralyzed by the side of violence. Uh, look, I think we all know what happened on the airplanes on 9-11, and it was only on one of them, by which time the passengers already knew exactly what had happened elsewhere, that they were driven to uh, act so courageously. But I've got to tell you that I understand perfectly. I do not hold it against the passengers of the uh, planes that crashed into the World Trade Centers. We know that they witnessed um, stewardesses and cabin attendants being having their throats cut. And I don't for a moment fault those passengers who were stunned into paralyzed immobility by that. I understand it because we in the West, under our current situation and the way our civilization has grown, starting off with a, a tendency to deplore violence, uh, we've actually ended up with men incapable of dealing with violence. Worse than that, not only incapable, but completely immobilized. The point is that um, revolutionary fervor always involves violence. This was true for Russia, it was true for France, it was not true for uh, the French Revolution, it was not true for the American War of Independence. There was fighting, there, was, there were battles obviously, but not brutality and massacres and violence for their own sake. Uh, in both the French Revolution and the Russian Revolution, uh, the revolutionaries, the activists, literally massacred huge numbers of their own people. You'll remember the famous uh, Bolshevik expression that you cannot make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. And uh, that was said after somebody expressed some reticence about the number of heads that were being smashed um, as part of the um, eagerness to bring about the revolution. Uh, and so uh, that is a little bit of a picture. It's a little bit of a picture of where this all begins. Uh, Dostoevsky had this enormous advantage. He knew how the world really worked. He knew it from the French Revolution. He knew it from watching some of the uh, embryonic revolutionary movements in the 19th century. And above all, he knew it from the Bible. And that's why in his book you will find so much understanding about revolutionary behavior 
essentially being a struggle to overturn God and his influence on our society. I think this is important because um, we, I'm recording this during an election year. You, you may be listening to it now. You may be listening to it um, after this election is over, decided and done with. But at, uh, at every time, it's helpful to be able to understand what's going on around us. There were many, many Jewish people who left France in time. There were people who left Russia in time. There, there were Jewish people who left Germany in time. And they did this in all cases because they knew what I'm teaching you in this particular program. They knew how the world really works. They knew that once the fervor of revolutionary drama had been ignited, the conflagration was going to consume everything in its path, and they knew they had to get out. And lives, their lives were saved in that fashion. I'm not saying that uh, we're facing uh, anything as grave as that. I, I pray profoundly that we are not. But who knows what tomorrow can bring. And whatever it does bring, being equipped means being able to understand where the future is going. It means being able to prophesy just a little bit. And in order to do that, you have to learn how the world really works. And if you have any determination to devote a little bit of your time to understanding how the world really works and to make sure you have any advance notice possible for any truly disturbing cultural trends, then you need my resource, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Because, you see, people have often asked me, well, what do you think about uh, stocking up with gold and ammunition and guns to be ready for the cultural civilization breakdown of civic order? And what about storing up a year's worth of food? After all, money is going to become valueless. Look, all these things have happened in the past, and not only can they, but they will happen in the future. These are bad, bad things. They are truly when fires have been ignited in the hearts of human beings and, uh, and these horrible revolutionary wars have been the result. Um, there weren't many Jews in China, but uh, had there been, they would have seen where Mao Zedong was going to take that country. And uh, they would have seen it in time. Um, I've often responded to people who've made these points. I've said, look, it's not, it's, it's not time now. Uh, we're, we're nowhere near there. There'll be plenty time. Believe me, the warning signs are nowhere near because I do have something of an understanding of what lies ahead, not with precise timing, not with precise detail, but enough to say right now, at, the, at this moment, while I am recording this particular Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, uh, I'm comfortable saying, no, nah, you don't have to stockpile uh, food. Uh, you don't have to stockpile gold because the currency is going to be useless. Now, all of this could change very quickly, but uh, the warning signs lie in understanding how the world really works. My website, rabbidaniellappin.com, the uh, product I would love for you to have because I've created it specially to equip everybody with the tools of if not recognizing and defeating tyranny, 
at least being able to protect yourself from its ravages. And so all that is left is for me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, to wish you all a week of good health and prosperity. God bless. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin.